0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. Ira Flato is away. If you follow Children's Health, you may have seen the headlines last week. Reports of a big breakthrough in research about SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. About 3,500 babies die suddenly and unexpectedly each year in the U.S. A study out of Australia found that babies who died of SIDS had significantly lower levels of an enzyme called BCHE. Now, this study, of course, was met with cheers by people who are desperate to better understand why SIDS happens. But some experts are saying we've got to pump the brakes on this celebration. SIDS is a devastating situation for parents, and the truth is there's a lot we don't know about it. While the study's promising, there's more we still need to learn. So joining us here for a reality check on the state of SIDS research is my guest, Dr. Rachel Moon, professor of pediatrics and SIDS researcher at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. She's also chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Task Force on SIDS. Welcome to Science Friday, Dr. Moon. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. First, why don't you tell us a bit about the study that came out of Australia? What exactly did it suggest? This study
0: looked at dried blood spots of babies who had died from SIDS, babies who had died from another cause and control babies. And what they found was that the serum levels of one enzyme called butyrolcholinesterase was statistically lower in the babies who had died of SIDS. Um, And so this created a huge media and social media flurry.
1: It it did create quite a flurry. Uh, These headlines were saying things like, this is the breakthrough in SIDS we've been waiting for. We'll have a cure for SIDS. So what's the reality here? What was your take on this paper?
0: So I think it's an interesting paper. It's a very preliminary result. There were only 26 babies who had died of SIDS who were represented in this study. And even though the levels were statistically lower in those babies, there was a great deal of overlap. So at this point, I don't think that we can use this as a biomarker because if you get one level, you can't make a prediction about whether or not a baby is at higher risk or not um, because there's just too much overlap. However, it it does remind us that there are neurotransmitters in some babies where there is deficiency or some kind of difference in how the neurotransmitters work, and that there is, for many of these babies, some kind of biological predisposition. And then when that baby is placed in a situation where they are experiencing some asphyxia, so that means a lower level of oxygen or a higher level of carbon dioxide, that they may not arouse, and they may not wake up to be able to respond appropriately to that stimulus. And so it does remind us that it's not just one thing that causes SIDS, but it's it's probably a perfect storm of several events happening at
1: once. Yeah. In, in a minute, I want to talk a little bit more about the, the research that you do and the other research that is out there right now. I, I guess I should ask, though, people did get very excited about this research. In, in your mind, what caused this excitement? I mean, why were so many people in the media, even in the science media, picking up on this story and saying, oh my goodness, we may have a breakthrough here?
0: You know, that is a very good question. I think those of us that are working in this in this area were a little bit surprised at how quickly this um, gained momentum. And none of us predicted this. I think that there are several reasons. It's such a devastating disease. Even though we know more about it than we did 20 or 30 years ago, there's still a lot of mystery left. There are a lot of breeding parents out there, people who have lost their babies before, and they're still left with this answer of why. And many of them have uh, experienced stigma because A lot of people, there's this perception out there that SIDS only happens to people who are bad parents. And it can't happen to me because I'm a good parent. And so then when it does happen to you, then you're treated differently by other people. And so to be able to say it wasn't anything that I did, but it was something that was innate in my baby, that is really very hopeful for people. And, um, and so I think that there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of fear. There's also a lot of there are a lot of people who don't want to follow the safe sleep guidelines, because they're hard, they're hard to follow. And so if we have, you know, if we have a blood test, I can diagnose it, then we, we can do away with all of that.
1: Well, let's talk about those safe sleep guidelines and some of the work that you do, seemingly on the completely other end of the spectrum here, not having to do with finding a specific biomarkers of what may cause this in babies, but really just applying best practices as far as we know them right now in order to keep kids as safe as possible. What can you tell us about these safe sleep practices?
0: Well, you know, these are pretty much tried and true. I mean, it's not hundred percent, but they do reduce your risk significantly. So these are things like place your baby on a back in a crib or a bassinet or a place that is flat and with a firm surface, and there should be nothing but the baby in that sleep environment. Breastfeeding is protective. Being in a non-smoking environment, that is also protective. And using a pacifier, is actually protective as well. So those are kind of um, those are the the mainstays of the safe sleep guidance that we provide to families.
1: And, and we know that that these things work, but as you say, it's not one hundred percent foolproof.
0: That's right. I mean, you know, so um, once back sleeping was recommended. The, the rates of SIDS declined by 50% in, in the US and, and in most places around the world that, that also recommended this. But since 2000, we have not seen a change in the rate of SIDS. It has not gone down. And these deaths still continue to happen. Part of it is because of unsafe sleep practices, or at least that is contributory. Part of it is also that these babies, many of them have an innate inability to wake up. Um, there's something going on in their brainstem, and there's been a lot of work done on brainstems and neurotransmitters and arousal, and these babies can't wake up. And so it's this combination of things that contribute to these deaths.
1: So what is the status of research on SIDS right now when it comes to biomarkers of, of the type of that we're talking about from this Australian study. uh, Neurotransmitters, the the inability of babies to wake up. What's What's the scope of the research being done right now in the world on SIDS, doctor?
0: There is a lot of work being done on um, the brainstem and looking at neurotransmitters. Um, There's a lot of work being done at at Boston Children's uh, by Hannah Kinney and Robin Haynes. Um, And there's work being done all over the world on this. Uh, I say that all over the world, it makes it sound like there are a lot of us doing it. There actually are not that many people um, doing research in this area. We're a very small community. Hmm. And so we we believe that what happens is that these babies ultimately can't wake up when they need to wake up. And this is likely because uh, there's some kind of, a break in the neurotransmitter um, connections. There's been a lot of attention on serotonin. There's also been a lot of attention on acetylcholine. Um, These are a couple of the the neurotransmitters that there's been a lot of focus on and and there have been some differences in. Um, In terms of biomarkers, something that you could test for, um, we actually were hopeful um, a few years ago because there were some promising signs that looking at serum blood levels of serotonin might be helpful in identifying which babies might have an arousal defect or, or be at higher risk for these deaths. Um, but the latest that I heard, which was um, earlier this month, it looks like that, that that is not the case, at least not right now. So at this point, I mean, we're closer than we were 10 years ago, but I would not say that that there's going to be a biomarker in three to five years. So what we're left with is doing the things that we know will reduce the risks. And those are, are the safe sleep practices.
1: And it's hard to find these biomarkers because of the difficulty in finding tissue samples.
0: It is very difficult to find tissue samples. So, you know, as I mentioned, and as everybody realizes, when your baby dies, it's the worst thing that in the world that can happen to you. And so um, you know, you've you've lost your baby, the police are coming to talk to you because they have to investigate this sudden and unexpected death. And so you feel like you're already being stigmatized. There's all of this emotional thing happening to you. And then somebody tells you that, that they're doing an autopsy, which is routine for these babies. And they ask you if you want to donate um, samples that can be saved for research. And you are probably not in the right mind to be able to do that because of all of this stuff that's happening to you that you're overwhelmed with. In every state except for one, parental consent is required before tissue samples can be gotten. And in California, which is the one state that does not require parental consent, most medical examiners are very reluctant to get tissue samples without parental consent. And 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 you know, and that that's certainly understandable. So it's very, very difficult to get tissue samples and It's interesting because if you talk to parents later on, they many times wish that they had said yes and they had given consent, but at that moment in time, they just couldn't do it. Um, It was just too much for them.
1: You know, obviously uh, 3,500 deaths or more than that, depending on the diagnosis, is, is a huge number of cases, but even beyond that, every parent in the world who fears for their child's safety and tries to follow safe sleep practices, is concerned every day about this happening. This is, doctor, just such a huge issue. And I guess it just shocks me when you say that there's not that many people like yourself studying this around the world.
0: It shocks me too. (laughs) So number one, the media doesn't cover this. And number two, the rates did go down after the the back to sleep campaign. And so there's this perception that this is a disease that has gone away. And so it's very difficult to get funding to study this. It's very difficult to find junior people who want to study this because it's hard to get funding. And so it becomes this vicious, vicious cycle. But I don't even think there are 100 people of us around the world that are, that are doing this work. And, and that includes the pathologists, the biochemists, the geneticists, the epidemiologists, the, the physiologists, all of these people. I don't
1: even know if there are 100 of us around the world. That's all the time we have. I'd like to thank our guest. Dr. Rachel Moon is professor of pediatrics and a SIDS researcher at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. She's also chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics Task Force on SIDS. Thank you so much for having me. We've got to take a break. When we come back, we're looking into how period tracking apps store and share your data and the role of digital privacy in a post Roe versus Wade era. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. Our next story is a continuation of our coverage of reproductive health and abortion access. This week, we're taking a look at the implications for digital privacy in a post-Roe versus Wade era. You may have seen people on social media saying that you should delete apps that help you track your period. What's the concern? Well, the data you share on them could be potentially used against you if abortion becomes criminalized in states across the nation. And millions of people use these apps to track their menstrual cycles. The app Flow says it has 43 million active users. And Clue says they have 12 million. But what kind of data do period tracking apps collect? Who can access this data? How worried should you be about entering your personal health information into an app? Joining me now to answer some of these questions and more is Laura Lazaro Cabrera, Legal Officer at Privacy International, based in London, England. Welcome to Science Friday, Laura. Thank you very much, John. In 2019, you looked into the privacy practices of period tracking apps, including two of the biggest on the market, those that we mentioned, Clue and Flow. You put in some personal information and then asked for copies of your data back. So what did you find?
2: Well, we not only reviewed Flow and Clue, but we also looked at a range of different peer tracking apps, including Maya by Caltech, MIA by Mobile Development Limited, and many others. And what we found is that pretty much all the information that we were putting into the app ourselves was then being stored in the company servers. And so what we saw range from information about our cycle uh, the date of our last period, as well as information relating to our sexual activity and information related to our diary entries, which could contain virtually any information that the user would want to put into it.
1: So this data was was saved on servers, shared with third parties. I assume that this is an expectation that the users of these apps, including yourself, didn't have.
2: Exactly. It wasn't all the apps that shared the data with third parties, but a couple of them did. And concerningly, they shared that data with Facebook and they shared it nearly verbatim. So we would put in the data and the data would get shared as it was put in with Facebook through we then learned the software development kit that Facebook often makes available to software developers and app
1: developers. Did did this surprise you to learn this?
2: Oh, of course. Uh, We weren't told. So we downloaded several of these apps through several phones. And of course, we had a look at the privacy policy, but we did not see the information that virtually all of the data that we would put in would be shared with Facebook and other third parties. We discovered that there was indeed more than one third party that received this information, and it was never made clear to us, and certainly not the granularity of data that these other parties would be getting.
1: For people who haven't used these apps before, maybe you can explain what types of data we're talking about here.
2: We're talking about data relating to the entirety of the menstrual cycle. So you'll put in the day of the first day of your period, you'll put in the last day of your period, you also add additional information such as your moods, how you're feeling on a particular day, whether or not you're experiencing any cramping. And indeed, some period tracking apps make available the option of the user declaring at the outset whether or not they're looking to get pregnant, because it can also be used to monitor how your cycle is doing and how likely you are to get pregnant in the near or short future.
1: So some of this is, is quantitative data, but some of it's very qualitative. It's, it's people's moods. It's how people are feeling about this particular moment in their lives. Absolutely. Uh, explain exactly what happens when you enter some personal health information into a period tracking app. And I understand each app works differently, but maybe you could give us an overview of, of what happens exactly.
2: Yes. So things will happen in one of two ways. Either the data used by the app is stored locally. That means that it is stored on your device or it is stored in the company servers. The moment that you put information into the app, that's considered an event. And so information of that event will be recorded by the company servers. If indeed that's how the app is built in, it may well be that the app is built in in a way where all the information is stored locally. Indeed, that would be ideal for privacy purposes, but most of the time, of course, it would get shared with the servers and that is tied to the app's functionality itself. And that is a reason that period tracking apps rely on when stating that they share data with third parties or indeed that they store the data in their own servers.
1: After your findings were published back in 2019, two of the big period tracking apps actually changed their data privacy policies. Tell us about what changes they made.
2: So one of the big changes that we were really happy to see was by Maya. So Maya changed its policies and changed the way the app worked by removing Facebook's core software uh, development kit, which was a primary way in which data was shared with Facebook. There were other types of data that were still shared with Facebook after these changes were introduced, but at least the user was given the opportunity to consent before the data sharing actually happened. And that is a big change insofar as the users now have a better knowledge who's likely to get the data. And they are at least offered the option not to share it with this other company and still use and enjoy the benefits of the app.
1: What do we know about what Facebook has done with data that it's gotten from these apps?
2: Well, sadly, we don't know very much. And that's pretty much what we always say about Facebook, we just don't know enough, there isn't enough transparency about the ways in which this data is handled. The reality is that the data gets shared with Facebook, whether or not you have an account or whether or not you are logged into to any of their products if the software development kit is allowed to operate in that way. Um, and so at the time we carried out this research, the default implementation of the Facebook software development kit was designed to automatically transmit event data to Facebook. However, Facebook places the sole responsibility on app developers to ensure that they have the lawful right to collect, use, and share people's data before providing Facebook with any data. Um, Once that gets to Facebook, there is very little clarity as to what happens with that data, whether it is combined or aggregated with other sources of data that Facebook has at its disposal, which includes, of course, all the advertisers that might upload data to Facebook and your own activity on the app or the platform you use it. Etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If you look at Facebook's privacy policy, um, they do acknowledge that they receive information for third parties and they do receive that information whether or not that third party collected the information online or offline. Um, but then again, we don't know what sort of due diligence Facebook applies to make sure that the data uploader, which in this case would be the peer tracking apps, um, we don't know how they've been made to comply with data protection laws enforced. We don't know how. Facebook exercises that oversight in a way that they can be sure that people's privacy rights are preserved.
1: So l- let's get to the crux of this. In a post-Roe versus Wade era in the U.S. where abortion is banned or criminalized in several states in the U.S., w- would Facebook likely provide user data to those who are seeking it, law enforcement officials or others?
2: I don't know that it's likely, but it's certainly possible. And in the past, we've seen lots of stories about uh not just Facebook or Meta or many other big tech companies sharing data with law enforcement at their request. In practice, there is very little um, a company can do to refuse to comply, and certainly there are consequences. Uh and recently, earlier in 2022, we can saw an example where uh hackers impersonated law enforcement authorities and submitted data requests. And Apple and Meta ended up providing subscriber data in response to a fake law enforcement request. Um, so this does happen. And one could even say that when these law enforcement requests arrive, there isn't much due diligence that is applied to see whether they come from legitimate authorities or indeed if they are legitimate.
1: What are the concerns in terms of law enforcement getting access to other third-party data.
2: We know that the U.S. government, for instance, has purchased data sets before in the context of immigration control enforcement. So if we're talking about the data marketplace, it's not impossible for the U.S. government to be accessing um, data brokers' data sets to get more information about particular individuals.
1: Are there certain apps that provide period tracking services that are more secure that you found than others?
2: Well, we've always been uncomfortable about reaching that sort of conclusion because that, in a way, signifies full access, full transparency, uh, and full understanding of an app. And it's very hard to achieve that. However, we feel that, of course, the legal framework under which an app operates is an important point of reference. Because even if it does not prevent wrongdoing in the first place, at least it provides individual users with a remedy or some accountability if something goes wrong if there is any data misuse and since we're based in London it's worth saying that for us the general data protection regulation which covers all of Europe is a primary reference so that is an important thing for people to bear in mind what sort of legal framework does this app fall under where is it headquartered or at servers located those are all relevant questions to ascertaining which law will apply and then users are able to decide whether or not they're happy with the level of protections provided by the legal system or whether they're not.
1: I mean, how much does it matter where uh, an app company is headquartered, whether it's in the EU or in the US or someplace else?
2: Well, the key thing here is the legal regime that applies. So if you're headquartered in the EU, it's very likely that you will fall under the general data protection regulation. And that means that additional responsibilities and obligations will apply on peer tracking apps or companies in general whether they be data processors or data controllers. And not just that, but the GDPR also imposes additional obligations and safeguards when it comes to health data at large. So it doesn't matter so much who's doing the processing of the information, what matters is the type of data that has been shared, and additional requirements apply if that data is considered to be sensitive. And of course, health data is considered to be
1: sensitive under GDPR. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Laura Lozaro Cabrera, legal officer at Privacy International, about data privacy in a post-Roe versus Wade world. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. So looping back to these legal questions, if, if a court was successfully able to acquire your personal data from your period of tracking app or some third party that it, it gives the data to. Would people be able to know if you were, say, pregnant or if you had a miscarriage?
2: The way that law enforcement can access this data is not only if you directly disclose it on the app. Indeed, it's possible for people to say, to type in, for instance, on the diary function, I had a miscarriage yesterday or I had a spontaneous abortion, et cetera, et cetera. That's only one way, but it's not the only way. For example, it will be possible for some of the data processed by these apps, not necessarily period tracking apps, but also others, which could be construed as a proxy for someone having been pregnant or someone having undergone a termination of their pregnancy. So proxy data, data will refer to data from which other data can be inferred, and these links aren't always obvious.
1: Hmm. And, and uh, along those lines, uh, are all the other ways that you might communicate uh, about your reproductive health, y- using uh, Google to search for abortion providers or or texting friends and family about your concerns, are these things that can be used against you?
2: Absolutely. Uh, I mean, in, in and of themselves, perhaps they wouldn't be able to be used as conclusive evidence that a crime has taken place if indeed abortion goes on to be criminalized. But then again, taking as a whole and looked at in light of other coexisting information, then... It might be enough to then prove that someone has undergone an abortion in circumstances where it was prohibited. And indeed, we know that browsing history has been used as evidence in legal proceedings before. And in particular in the US, um, there are federal offenses that can be incurred if a person decides to delete their browsing history all of a sudden. So all of these are relevant considerations for people to bear in mind.
1: How can people better protect their reproductive health data? I mean, Should they, as we said at the, at the top, be deleting these period tracking apps altogether?
2: I wouldn't advise for people to delete their peer tracking apps before reading the privacy policy in full. And if they do read privacy policies of peer tracking apps at large, they may well discover that once you stop engaging with the app or once you even delete the app, that does not mean that data stops being shared or that your data is deleted. So what you may want to do instead is after you look at the privacy policy, figure out what the process is for deleting data and trigger that process. And sometimes it won't be as easy as pressing a button. Sometimes it will involve finding out an email address, then sending an email and explicitly requesting for data to be deleted. So I would urge people before they stop an engagement with the app, just consider what you need to do to make sure that that app is no longer processing your data.
1: But but honestly, just reading these privacy policies is enough to give you a headache. I mean, if you don't have a legal background, it's kind of hard to parse what exactly these privacy policies are saying.
2: That, that's absolutely correct. And even if you do have a legal background, it's still very difficult to try and make sense of exactly what data is being shared with whom. And in general, privacy policies are being kept vague enough that you can't be 100% sure of what's happening with your data. Um, That being said, there is, I think, a responsibility on companies in general, but now particularly on peer-tracking apps companies, considering the current context in the U.S., to make sure that their privacy policies are easy to access, that they're readable, that they're understandable, particularly understandable by their own audience.
1: Do you think that questions like these specifically surrounding some of the reproductive health questions that have come up just now. Do you think that this is going to fundamentally change how we think about medical privacy overall in the United States?
2: Definitely. Health data is perceived as something relevant only to hospitals and healthcare facilities in general. And we associate health data with professional healthcare services, which means that there is a baseline level of trust. And that's because we subsume the concept of privacy and data protection under the broader patient-doctor confidentiality doctrine. And it's important to distinguish those concepts. Doctor-patient confidentiality is grounded in the relationship you have with a regulated health service provider, but data protection is grounded in the nature of the data, regardless of who you share it with. And I believe that the current conversation happening right now will help people to realize that they have a lot more agency in this process than they thought. But that also means that there's a lot more responsibility um, and that we, to an extent, have to hold ourselves accountable for the data that we share with
1: others. Is there a policy solution that you think the United States needs to adopt in order to address some of these issues? And is it, a, is it purely a, a federal policy solution as opposed to state by state, which is how we are tackling these other reproductive health issues?
2: It's important to have some consistency and it's important to have, let's say, a baseline level of protection for privacy and data protection at large, which could be achieved in the form of federal regulation. Um, And one way to do it would be to put the type of data that is being shared front and center instead of making any regulation or oversight subject to formal accreditation or formal licensing requirements. And I know that to be the case for some states in the U.S. where additional data protection obligations apply, that's often tied to the nature of the health service provider. So again, it's grounded in the relationship that a patient may have with a service provider and not so much grounded in the type of data that's being shared. If you put health data front and center or sensitive data in general front and center, then that means that people can be protected and their rights can be exercised regardless of who gets the data.
1: Laura Lozaro Cabrera is legal officer at Privacy International based in London, England. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much, John.
1: We have to take a quick break, and when we come back, a conversation about encouraging girls to become scientists, and why it's important to talk about the highs and the lows that go along with a job. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky. When you think about pioneering female scientists, you may have figures like Marie Curie or Jane Goodall in mind. But what about the female scientists who are working to answer today's biggest scientific questions? A new book from National Geographic tells the story of early and mid-career female scientists in many disciplines around the globe. Their stories focus on the ups and downs of what it's really like to be a scientist today. It's written for kids and tweens, and it's called No Boundaries, 25 Women Explorers and Scientists Share Adventures, Inspiration, and Advice. Joining me now is producer Shoshana Bucksbaum, who had a chance to talk with one of the book's co-authors, Claire Fiesler, a conservation biologist and a National Geographic explorer. Hi, Shoshana. Hey, John. So what was it about this book that really resonated with you?
3: Yeah, so I'm obviously a big fan of science. After all, I work here at Science Friday, but I can't say that as a kid, I saw myself becoming a scientist or even a science journalist for that matter that all came together later. I realized that many of my interests, health, animals, the environment, were all actually, you guessed it, science. Um, I found it super interesting that many of the female scientists profiled on the book also didn't originally see themselves as having a career in science. So I was curious about what motivated the book's co-author, Claire Fiesler, to write it. She told me about how it all started when she was reading an issue of a National Geographic magazine, all the
4: way back in 2013. The topic was bringing species back from extinction, kind of using biomedical technology. And I got to like a page where it kind of showed a team of scientists working on this topic, and it seemed to be like all men. So I went through and I decided to count how many male scientists versus female scientists were quoted in this fascinating issue of National Geographic. And I could only find four women quoted out of like 35 scientists. And so that's that's about 10%. And that's when I realized like, oh, this is a problem, <laughs> you know? And from there, I just started digging more. I spoke to a couple different of the other kind of younger National Geographic explorers and grantees about this issue. And I was able to get about a dozen of us to pick up other issues of National Geographic and start counting the number of men versus men, female scientists quoted and featured and photographed. And in just like the span of a month or two, we together read 34 issues of National Geographic between you know, the October 2012 issue to the July 2015 issue. And what we found is that across all those issues, there were 1,106 experts featured or quoted. And 205 of those were women. So that's that's about 19%. And the numbers were so shocking that this was not just, you know, a problem for one issue, but basically all the issues, that I asked National Geographic if I could present, do a presentation about this, and they let me. Uh, so I did, and I think they were aware of the problem. And after the presentation, a fellow explorer came up to me and was like, "We should do something about this." And so, first we got a grant to make a documentary about uh, female explorers, and then from there, National Geographic kind of thought it was a good idea for us to write a children's book, and that's that's how this book came about.
3: Yeah, I mean that's quite <laughs> quite a journey getting to this book. So, why did you choose to profile living female scientists? Versus historical figures like Marie Curie. I mean, I think a lot of us tend to, you know, look back to the past for inspiration for heroes. But why is it so important for you to say, like, okay, we're going to profile people doing the work now?
4: I think for us, it was about um, being able to show a work in progress. And when you look at the careers of Marie Curie and Jane Goodall, they've already kind of had their you know, arc to success. And when you, they do talk about failures or you read about in a book, you're like, okay, but you know, they overcame it and look, they're the most famous scientists in history. Um, And we wanted to really dwell on those issues of obstacles and challenges and, and how people overcame them. And so, you know, interviewing women that were still in the early or middle parts of their career seemed like the best way to do that because, most of the women we talked to were still working through these issues and, and had answers, but but really we're like still wrestling with them. And I think that, that made these women more relatable to me. And I thought, you know, they'll probably make it more relatable to kids too. I think one of the really special things
3: about the book is the little details that you chose to include. There's this section in each profile, it's called must haves, and it's usually a tool or, you know, something that scientists bring out in the field with them. And I especially loved that the astronomer uh, Munaza Alam, she mentioned that she always brings lip balm and hand cream because when she goes up to these big telescopes, they're in really dry areas. And so to me, that was just a little detail that I could see myself as a little kid really glomming on to. Why did you decide to include these kinds of little mundane details um about like the things you put in your bag when you're heading out the door to do
4: science well i've done quite a bit of field work myself and these little details about what women think about before they go into the field yes like they're Thinking about these big questions of like, is there life on other planets? But they're also thinking about like, how dry will my skin get? And will I be comfortable? You know, how cold will this place get? And will I be comfortable? And, you know, being comfortable in the field, comfortable enough to do the work you need to do is important. And anyone who says otherwise is lying. (laughs) Yeah. So I just love the fact that. Monasa Alam um, she she goes to these telescopes that are like high in the deserts of Chile which is very very dry and you know if your skin is cracking and your lips hurt like it's going to be hard to like find out the atmospheres of other exoplanets in our universe you know maybe some critics would be like oh that's kind of showing women as like too feminine or something but no these are real stories of women this is what they would think about there's another woman who studies Plesiosaurs, which are kind of like ocean reptiles of the past, and her name is Aubrey Roberts, and she has to sleep in tents in Slavabad, which is an island in like the Arctic for months, and it's very cold and uncomfortable. She makes sure she brings a pillow because (laughs) she's going to be cold and wet. But if her head is comfortable, like that, can be a saving grace. Bringing a pillow into the field, bringing bringing chapstick into the field are these little details that humanize them. You know, Jane Goodall is just so impressive. And uh, she's almost otherworldly in her impressiveness that maybe she can seem like out of reach. We wanted these women to be within reach for young for young girls, young kids in general.
3: Yeah, yeah. And speaking of primates, there's a quote from primatologist Patricia Chapel some advice in the book that stuck with me. And it says, there will be people who will tell you don't do this, or you can't do that. They're just trying to be practical. (laughs) They don't mean any harm. But sometimes you just have to be insistent about what it is you really want to do. I think persistence is definitely a through line in this book. Why was that something that you felt like was important to thread through much of these
4: stories? Persistence is is essentially the one-word summary of the entire 160-page book. (laughs) I'm glad I landed on it then. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you for validating my mission. Having spoken and interviewed these 25 women in uh, preparing for this book, that is the common theme, and that much more so than natural talent, much more so than, um, you know, fancy degrees, persistence truly is the secret sauce to all of these women's achievements. And I think that. That is not stressed enough to young girls. I think it's like excellence in math and science and going to college and all those things are important. The idea that persistence can take you far, I don't think is really stressed enough to young girls. Um, I think perfectionism is stressed. And and that's like the complete opposite message I want to give to young girls trying to get to the place where I am and other women in this book are. Who cares about perfectionism? Like persistence is where it's at. Yeah, yeah. And this through line of
3: persistence, I think, was really highlighted in Egyptologist Nora Shaki's story. Can you tell me a little bit about her challenges in getting her research completed? She was faced with a lot of obstacles in terms of
4: getting her research approved and moving forward. Nora's story is a really special story uh, because she is so willing to talk about the importance of persistence in the context of failure. And we included her story in this book specifically because she wanted to talk about that enthusiastically. She's an Egyptologist, so she studies cultures of the past in Egypt. And there's this one site that she had researched for years that she had her heart set on. And then she couldn't go there because of just permitting and bureaucracy and red tape. And so she Was just like, okay, we'll go to this other spot, we'll make it work. And she just pivoted and made it work. And I don't think, you know, it was perfect, but she completed it and she made these really fantastic discoveries about jewelry that women were wearing at the time who were like not of the noble class. And she was able to make a difference still in her field, despite kind of in a way failing at the onset. And I mean, I think this book, it's sort of refreshingly
3: not a girl power message in a sense. Like I'm a 90s and <laughs> I remember getting a lot of that messaging of like, girls can do it too. But this book is obviously encouraging girls to go into science, but it's very much a, this is exciting stuff that you can do, and this is what it'll take to do that? Was that a deliberate choice of how you framed these stories and how
4: you put the book together? 100% that was a deliberate choice. We did not want the phrase girl power anywhere in our book. For me, writing this book, the message was not, um, you can do it too. It was more like, women make a difference. But there are often a lot of hard things that they have to overcome. Specifically because they're women. And these are how 25 women are overcoming them. And you'll find your own way and we'll have your back. We have something in common that we both grew up in New Jersey. We did grow- both grow up in New Jersey. New Jersey is America's best kept secret. Yes,
3: thank you. I'm glad we have that on the record. But it's a very <laughs> inspiring place. There's plenty of nature forests, beaches, lakes, wildlife, especially some good birds. So what in your wonderful Jersey childhood sparked your interest in
4: nature and in science, ultimately? I think the short answer to that is um, growing up near the ocean obviously inspired me and made me curious and, and helped me think of big questions. and And I'm now a marine ecologist. I study ocean ecosystems and how climate change is threatening them. But the longer answer is that I was interested in how these these ocean ecosystems changed because you know n- New Jersey is one of the greatest ocean restoration success stories believe it or not when i was growing up in the 80s there was a lot of pollution specifically medical waste there was this specific instance called the syringe tide where i mean needles were wash- washing up on the beaches of new jersey and i remember that i was a kid i was about 3 or 4 years old and despite us living you know, right near the beach, we couldn't even go for, for two summers. Fast forward 20 years later, and I was a beach lifeguard in my hometown. And I would be kayaking in the morning with dolphins, I would see humpback whales spouting off the jetty, I would see all sorts of fish and the marine life had really, you know, rebounded. And that gave me hope, you know, I think people who don't observe that change can fall into despair about the state of our planet. But I mean, the formative experience in my life was the opposite, that we can go from absolute ruin to a restored
3: ecosystem. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum, and I'm talking with National Geographic Explorer Claire Fiesler. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. You didn't actually originally imagine yourself becoming a scientist, right? That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Even though you sort of grew up near the beach, saw this revitalization happen, were interested in marine life, why didn't you see yourself becoming a scientist when you got older?
4: Well, I think that I had a vision in my mind of what a scientist should be, which is like someone in a white lab coat, like locked in a laboratory, not talking to anybody. And so... It was really these kind of stereotypes that I think prevented me from seeing myself in that role. And I remember when I graduated from college, I had even worked in a lab and still couldn't envision myself doing it as a career. And so when I graduated, I actually applied for a job at National Geographic. And I ended up getting a job in their filmmaking department. And for about two years, I helped take scientists' stories and turn them into scripts for TV shows. And I was able to meet so many scientists who were outgoing and were jovial and making jokes and had these big ideas and were not stuck in a lab. And that made me realize like, oh, okay, like I have no idea what it means to be a scientist. And frankly, I can make it my own thing. So (laughs) these people did. And since then, I've, I've skirted between these careers of media and science and this book was kind of just a way of taking everything I've learned from being in the science world and using storytelling to report back out to the, the real world of what it's like.
3: And I want to end on this final question of what would this book meant to you um, if you had it when you were a kid?
4: Ah, very good question. Well, in the introduction of this book, my co-author Gabby Salazar and I write, you know, we wrote this book because it's a book we wish we had when we were kids. And that's true. I don't know. I don't know what sort of difference it would have made. It, I probably would still be here, but I probably would have gotten to this place in my life earlier. I just hope kids enjoy it and they they see the message of persistence and representation that I, I just didn't. I want, I want that for them.
3: This has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on Science
4: Friday. Thank you. I'm honored to be on Science Friday, especially with a fellow New Jerseyan. And uh, it was a joy speaking about this book.
3: Claire Fiesler is a conservation biologist, National Geographic Explorer, Smithsonian Fellow, and co-author of No Boundaries, 25 Women Explorers and Scientists, Share Adventures, Inspiration, and Advice. For Science Friday, I'm Shoshana Bucksbaum.
1: Thanks so much, Shoshana. If you want to learn more about scientists profiled in this book, go to sciencefriday.com slash no boundaries. You can read mammologist and outreach scientist Danielle Lee's profile. She'll be on the show in the coming weeks. If you missed any part of this program or you'd like to hear it again, you can subscribe to our podcasts, or you can ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. You know, every day is now Science Friday. Say hi to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or email us. The address is SciFry at sciencefriday.com. Send feedback and tell us what you'd like us to cover too. I'm John Dankosky. Ira Flatow is back next week.